0: Stand clear of the closing doors, please. This is the Kaleidocast.
1: Hello,
2: and welcome once again to the Kaleidocast. No,
1: no, new name. I sing the Potty Electric because of my newest innovation, which makes inhabiting a physical body way less Cronenbergian.
2: Uh-huh. And I'm guessing it has something to do with these shiny discs you're festooned with? It looks like you've hot glued them to... Is that a fishnet stocking? No, it's an actual fishnet that you're wearing like an actual tunic.
1: Yes, because science has failed us. We ought to be cyborgs or something by now, but we're still all made of dumb, gross meat. Forget science, I'm going back to good old magic. Magic, as
2: represented by this dollar store chainmail
1: you're wearing. You know how during the Black Plague, doctors would put on beak masks and go around poking people with sticks? Yeah. Well, did you know that one of the standard cures was gold? It was so pure and beautiful, even the plague would respect you and leave you alone. I mean, think about it. Well... Think about it. See, even death respects cash money. And with this suit of gold coins, I figure I'm invulnerable to all zoonotic diseases. Except those obviously aren't gold
2: coins. They're chocolate coins wrapped in gold-colored foil. You're proposing to defy death with Hanukkah guilt.
1: That's actually a bonus, because this way it'll also ward off Val the Vegan, or whatever his name is. That's why I got milk chocolate instead of dark.
2: Listen, if it works on that weirdo, I might want one too. He makes a pretty good tempeh shish kebab, but he kept looking at my neck while I ate it. And he asked me to call him Jean.
1: Jean? Ooh You went on a date after wishing me into non-existence?
2: Hey, no one said date. And I didn't wish you into non-existence. Can we talk about this later?
1: Our 2,653 listeners deserve to know the truth. They heard you make that wish whereupon I winked out of existence. Veronica? I was in a realm beyond time and space. I was a moat in God's eye.
2: Veronica, you were at the White Horse Tavern double-fisting strawberry margaritas. Terry said they had to physically restrain you from jumping up on the bar to do the Gangnam Style Dance.
1: What year do you think it is? You're saying that's how I ended up on the carousel in Brooklyn Bridge Park. Yes, and the only thing that disappeared
2: was our petty cash fund and possibly Terry's respect for you.
1: Ah, but I don't have a hangover. How do you explain that, smarty pants? Well, maybe
2: your magic cloak works on those too.
1: Hey, yeah, this thing's even better than I thought.
2: And now, while my colleague continues her experiment with the dark arts, let's enjoy another medical fantasy, Treatment and Cure by Katie Story. And Veronica, you behave yourself when Val stops by for a very special second half event, okay?
1: No promises!
3: Treatment and Cure by Katie Story An ambulance drowns out the urgent care attendant as you stand beside the midday COVID test line. You're 25 with a few months of insurance left and feel fine, just a little short of breath, with a heart thrumming like a hummingbird, unabating for three days now. The flicking red lights glance off the glass of the medical office and the attendant's face. He's pulled you aside. We don't treat heart problems. Understand if you don't go to the ER, you can die, he says under the scream of the siren. I have a moral obligation. You want him to assure you that it's only anxiety keeping your heart rate high, but it's Twenty-one degrees outside, and the PCR line is long and growing. He has work to do, and you wouldn't want to burden his conscience. There's an unmasked man in a black coat soliciting glares from people in line. Your time is up. Of course I'll go, you say. Words swallowed by the siren, he nods, and your eyes track the receding ambulance. You don't want to go but you barely register having a choice. It's easier to do as you're told. A gray sky stretches over salt-stained sidewalks as you return the way you came. Each breath seeps past your KN95 and clouds the edge of your glasses. You hold your breath to see clearly and in the silence hear the hard tap of shoes behind you on the sidewalk. You glance behind, nothing. The heels scuff after you the whole 15 minutes to the subway station. Going down, there's a man behind you, a black scarf wrapped over his face, uncomfortably friendly eyes peeking out, hands dug in the pockets of a black wool coat. I guess so? You can't imagine this is anything a lazy weekend at home can't fix, but if it's something, you imagine your neighbor finding you in late decomposition, alerted by leakage. No one should witness that, and you don't want to damage the hardwood. You descend the stairs, mostly to get out of his way, grimacing at the reek of urine. The station is empty the concrete black with condensation and grime. You don't know where that man went. The turnstile is silent. On the platform, your hand drifts to your throat. You find your pulse behind your larynx, still too fast to count. You tell yourself it is right to be circumspect. Heart problems are a comorbidity. You need to know your risk. After eight minutes, the train comes with a rising roar, light strobing across the dusky station support beams. The doors retract along its gleaming length, and you step into the miasmic heat within, eyes down. As the train pulls onward, sweat crawls down your neck, and you breathe shallowly, balancing so you don't have to touch the pole, even though your hands are gloved. Three minutes later, you step off onto another empty, cold platform, and you're thinking you might have this sorted by dinner. As you reach the turnstile, a man limps up from the underpass. He's clothed in nothing but a thin blue hospital gown, poorly wrapped so his left side is exposed. He clutches his chest in apparent agitation and glances over your shoulder at the stairs to the street. You okay? You whisper with one hand on the turnstile behind you. He sinks to his knees and shakes his head side to side. You bite your lip, then turn your back and push through the gate, wondering how the hospital discharged him without winter clothes. At the bottom of the stairs, you glance back and see the man in the black jacket and scarf stooping, holding the patient's wrist. You hesitate, confused, Then you shake your head and climb to the street, panting. It's only one block to the hospital. Ambulances clutter the driveway and green scaffolding covers the signage. It takes you several minutes to find a pair of unlabeled sliding doors that open. Within, yellow light glints off brown linoleum and an industrial air purifier sits inert before a grid of chairs each three feet apart. A television advertises pseudo-scientific supplements. Is this the emergency room? You ask a nurse with a drooping mask at your left. She holds an infrared thermometer to your forehead and with a mumble waves you forward towards a receptionist. A security guard watches you approach. You slide into the chair at the reception desk, saying, I was told to go to the ER, and the worn-looking woman passes you paperwork under a barrier, COVID plexi or bulletproof, you aren't sure. There's something with my heart, I guess. You flip through the form, consent to treat, individual financial responsibility, You sign where marked and slide the papers back under the plexi. You're just glad this is happening while you still have insurance. The receptionist points to your left hand, which holds the pen. There's a hole in the plexi you realize that will fit your fist. Not fully understanding, you lay down the pen and insert your hand. The woman loops an adhesive Tyvek band around your wrist and you draw your hand back, seeing your name printed there with a barcode. She slides you back your ID. You glance up at the woman and she says something pointing to your left. As you stand, the primly dressed man from the subway station strolls in from the street, peeling off his black scarf and flicking it over his shoulder, revealing a bright, bloody, unmasked smile. You stare, immobilized, noting the green scrubs at the throat of his jacket as he nods to the security guard. Hey, Jim, the guard says, raising his head incrementally. I don't know why you call me that. The nurse's uncanny smile widens and somehow lands on you before he slips between a set of double doors and disappears. What was that? you ask, glancing at the guard, and then a woman that emerges from an office beside him. What? the guard echoes, unperturbed. A woman with glazed eyes gestures you into a room beside the guard. You reluctantly follow her in. It's cramped with every sort of measurement tool, and you sit in a wheeled chair facing her desk just to get out of the way. She looks at your name on the wristband. Who was that man? You mean Jack? She wraps a blood pressure cuff around your arm and inflates it. Your pulse twitches in the crux of your elbow as the device exhales, and she stares at the screen for too long, face stony. You smile, knowingly. Yeah, it's always high. I had a blood test that said... She fixes you with dark, dilated eyes. Don't move. The woman unlocks the brake on the wheelchair with her foot, pushes you past the guard through the double doors, down a hall where dented paper printouts designate COVID zones, into a large room, and parks you by a doorway with an enormous sign for Resuscitation Room. How long will I be here? You ask sensing your day slipping away. You want to explain that you're not about to drop dead. You feel fine, but no one is listening. Not really. The doctor will come. The woman gives you a worried look, then leaves. You doubt she knows the answer to your question anyway. It isn't her job. You turn in your chair, There are at least 20 patient beds in the room, many attached to intermittently alarming monitors, separated with tatty curtains that are open to your line of sight. A man in a hospital gown growls as he fumbles with his tangled blankets and exposes his buttocks. Your eyes flick to the perlite ceiling. There are no windows. You dig out your phone to check the time, but the battery is dead. The half-naked patient makes animal noises. You stare at the door, jaw set, throat drying, bladder filling. People in white coats and blue masks pass intermittently. Heels rapping on the tile floor, backs rigid, and eyes always pointed beyond you, no matter how quickly you jerk upright in your chair and call out to them, Hey, I've been sitting here. Maybe an hour passes, your head begins to throb. Hey, I... Another hour. Can't blame them if you're not their patient. Still, the dingy fluorescent lights blind your eyes and the colors grow garish shades of vomit. Is someone going to... Everything is one unchanging, infuriating moment. The motion of nurses passing you by, staggering your lagging brain. You stiffen every time they approach as if they might collide into you. Can... Your eyes grow hot. You want to give up, but you gather your strength. Can I get some water? You twist around in your chair, throat and bladder aching. A nurse carries a tray of food and a tall cup of water out of sight. The monitors fill the room like a dozen car door alarms and the side of your head radiates pain behind the eye and across the temple. The fluorescent ceiling lights sear across your vision so you barely see when the nurse comes back. Hey! you shout. Lurching to your feet, the room revolves after images of light fixtures march across your vision. I need to pee. It's Jake from the subway, you realize, or was it John? Something in your mind short-circuits from the way he's appraising you with a clear slash of blood across his mouth as you stand slightly hunched, trying not to piss yourself. He strides towards you and you flinch back down into the chair, shuddering. They left you here? he asks, hand on the armrest of the chair. He's too close, his... Attractive jawline delineated with a trailing bead of blood. He fills your entire reeling field of view and the scent of ripening gore invades your nostrils. You want to scream in rage or cry. How many people have walked past you? How many hours has it been and they've left you here with him? Instead, you whisper nonsensically, "'Where's your mask?' He smiles and straightens, bearing unusually white, blood-rimmed teeth. "'Is that what you're worried about?' Before you can react, a torrent of residents led by a doctor surges toward you, and James is lost in the mix." A resident wheels you to a bed that you clamber onto to get away from their grasping arms, catching a glimpse of Jason? Jeff? Jay's bloody handprint on the wheelchair before they take it away. An indistinguishable blur of warnings emanate from the group. Whoa, slow down. Can you walk? Careful. Hands push you down wrangle layers of wires, pass you a robe. Put this on. You take off your shirt, tug the loose hospital garment on, and hold it shut over your chest. One hand takes your left arm by the elbow, holding the narrow veins to the light. There is rubbing alcohol, muttering the painful snap of a thick elastic band over your upper arm. Someone else rolls a machine towards you, speaks light and friendly as he opens your robe and places adhesive electrodes over your exposed chest. A needle is inserted in your arm three times before they try the back of your hand. The IV port twists inside the vein and you clench your teeth at the jolt of pain. The monitor at your right beeps a repeating dour note interrupted irregularly by a rapid three-tone alarm and an ecg prints blood floods into a small tube that pops free with a click and they leave you with an iv drip into your hand they are speaking droning on about you fluttering the printed ECG around, and you lurch upward in the bed, not caring if you're shirtless. You need to pee. The IV in the wires, four on your chest and two on your ankles, go taut from the movement, constraining you, and the doctor casts you a distracted, censorious look, She wears her hair in tight braided rows, a white coat, confidence across her shoulders, a blue mask pulled down on her chin. You steel yourself, inhale and try. Please. The group moves on to the next patient. You stare after them in disbelief. Your bladder is hot and cramped. Your skull pulses with each alarm of the machine you're attached to. Pain rising as you scan the room for a sympathetic set of eyes. Other nurses drift past in green, traversing the space between their cubicled computer stations and the hall, looking down as if actively avoiding your wild stare. You sink back, clutching your dead phone. Your vision goes filmy from the ceiling lights that sear hot pink even when you shut your eyes, and bile rises in your throat from the pain in your head, powerful enough to smother the heat and pressure of your full bladder. For a quarter of an hour you squeeze your eyes shut, thinking the after-images will fade and there might be some darkness to be found, But the pain only swells until each shriek of the alarming heart rate monitor feels like a hammer swung at your temple. An hour passes. Tears of anger saturate the bottom edge of your mask. You hold your breath and then take several slow, measured breaths, suppressing the emotion. You can't afford to have your nose run and ruin your only good mask. None of the other patients here are wearing one, and you still don't know if they've put you in the goddamn COVID ward. No one swabbed you. Pain shatters through your skull, slivers down your gritted teeth, churns acid up in your esophagus, sets your diaphragm to convulsing, though there's nothing in your stomach to retch. You think it can't get worse? someone sets a tray of food at your feet along with a lidded paper cup splashed with that turquoise and magenta pattern left over from lunch it's jay stomach acid tries to climb out of your mouth and you look up warily as he turns away crossing over to another patient an odd bounce in his step you roll onto your side and the nausea abates slightly there's nothing else to do so with your unencumbered hand you tug the tray forwards and lift the cold condensation covered lid to reveal a plate of fish white rice and wet spinach it's many hours past lunch the smell of fish washes over you and you are strangely revived by hunger it's been longer than you realized With no other hope of food, you fumble open the plastic utensil packet. Your hand trembles as you fork a flake of the room temperature meat into your mouth, but after a while you give up, overcome by the sensation that your skull is broken. Laying on your side, you stare blankly at the plate as saliva collects in your cheek. Some ancient instinct causes you to play dead so you don't protest when someone takes the plate and your water away. Someone says, I haven't gotten a break in three days, so I'm going to take mine now. The words are muffled like there's water in your ears. Some of the ceiling lights turn off. Nurses settle down in the cubicle structure in the middle of the room, slouched out of view, faces glued to screens. Your mind circles trying to place blame, but there is no one person you can identify. You command no one's attention. They are all pulled in a dozen directions. Across the room you watch the bare-ass patient shifting on his bed. The monitor of another older man blinks, bradycardia, but it doesn't alarm. You watch the number descend below forty. He hasn't moved since you arrived, but Jay is there holding his wrist. After a minute, Jay sets the man's arm down and moves in front of the bed, blocking your view of the patient. Above them, the cardiogram fluctuates, then degrades into a smooth series of M shapes. Jay lurches forward onto the man. CPR? Your brain suggests, but the movement reminds you of a cat vomiting. The nurse is inclined, twitching, face pressed into the bared chest of the motionless patient, one hand fumbling at the patient's mouth, jamming inside. With a grunt, Jay pulls something small and bloody from the patient's mouth and puts it into his own, wiping the residual blood from his hand on his white coat. You stare. At your right, a nurse wheels your neighboring patient out of the ward and the floor is still except for Jay's jaw as he chews. Wait, you protest too late. Nausea returns as a sudden convulsion of your diaphragm and drool is filling your mouth. You lurch to your knees and moan involuntarily, catching a glimpse of Jay turning your way. There is blood all over his green shirt. No, you croak too loud leaning forward on your elbows to avoid vomiting on yourself you tear your mask off cast it behind you and pull your hair back with one hand a jerk of vomit possesses you and as you try to breathe it comes spurting out onto the foot of the bed and lodges burning and thick in the back of your nose then you can't stop You shut your eyes. It's the fish, undigested in a brown, frothy bile, splattering off at the end of the table and onto the floor. When you're done, you grip the end of the bed, trembling and covered in sweat. Your monitor alarms every five seconds, but the pain is temporarily subdued. You sit back. Shirt falling open, and that's when you realize your underwear and pants are saturated with urine. You pick up your mask and find it's damp as well. In your peripheral vision, you see Jay approach. He stands 10 feet away. Behind him, the bradycardiac patient's heart monitor has gone blank. You gaze at the blood smeared all over his front, sinking down and away inside your own mind, not wanting to believe what your senses report. Then the double doors burst open and a nurse pushes a woman on a portable bed into the middle of the room between you and Jay. Help! You shout at the nurse, unmasked, spit-flying, pointing at the bloody-faced man and the patient you can only presume he has killed. The monitor, hooked to your pulse, gives a rapid triple-tone alarm, and you flinch. The intruding nurse notices you, nods at the mess of vomit that you've made, and pushes back out through the double doors. No, no, no... The new patient holds a white blanket and a tight fist over her contorted form. Her eyes are shut as if she is asleep, but every few seconds she shouts and twists as if being impaled. Jay wraps his bloody fingers around the side of her bed, his head tilted as if in adoration. You glance around the room. I, the batch of cubicle nurses, oblivious to the situation. Someone needs to act. Hey! Hey! You shout at them, accusingly, not caring that it's the middle of the night. Your mouth is sour with vomit. You breathe the unfiltered air and it feels like a violation and Jay has raised his head, frowning patiently at you. You see, past his civil pretences, he doesn't belong here. That patient just died, you shout to the cluster of desk nurses. Hey! The wires constrain you, and Jay moves to stand between you and the cubicles cutting off your line of sight. The beds on either side of you are empty, there is no one else left. Settle down. He murmurs, they won't come as long as your mind, your words dry on your tongue. The relief of Emesis is gone. Light slashes hot across your vision, the alarm sledging into your temple while the new woman groans and Jay absently strokes her shoulder, eliciting a scream. The wires and needle in your hand that hold you in place. The attention unpredictable, useless, and arbitrary. You are ready to bite someone if they pretend this is all right. But Jay's right. No one does. I was fine, you tell yourself. Fine, and now I'm losing my damn mind. You don't recognize yourself anymore. You are reduced, an animal desperate for escape. No one to blame but a death at home sounds better than another interminable day at the mercy of the system and the whims of this predator. You tear the contacts from your legs and chest, untape the IV and hesitate, then pull the needle from the back of your hand. It hangs bloody on its tube over the floor. You stumble off the bed, smearing yourself in your own vomit, and stagger toward the double doors. Somehow you still need to empty your bladder, but you're not going to do it like this. Jay follows you with his lingering steps, unconcerned. His arms catch you as your fingers grasp for the double doors and you shriek, feeling blood soak through the back of your gown. His calm, numb voice in your ear says, You think you can just walk away from me? You squeal and twist at his hot, bloody breath on your face, rip your arms free, stagger away, and gape at his bemused smile, the tip of his scarlet tongue showing between his teeth. A few tired nurses in the cubicle station stand at the commotion and look on, mistaking him from behind as one of their own. You're killing me! You spit recoiling against the door, trying to back through it, trying to make eye contact with the nurses, watching, I'm covered in piss and vomit and I don't know whose blood and that stupid machine wouldn't stop alarming and now I have the worst migraine in my life and you stop yourself. You can't say you'd rather be dead. They'll never let you leave. And if you accuse Jay of what you just saw... A smile flashes over Jay's face. The door opens behind you and the security guard blocks your way. You brace yourself against the threshold, strength faltering. And the man in there just died under his care, you conclude, searching for a sympathetic face, though you wonder if the old bradycardiac man would even want to be brought back to this place. Do you not see the blood? We can't have you leaving if you don't feel well, Jay says, his tone a practice kind of reassuring that might have worked the first innocent hour you were here. I'm going, you spit. You are distantly aware that you have left your shirt behind and wear only the hospital gown soiled by Jay's bloody embrace. To hell with it. But the security guard closes the distance. You step away and the door out of the ward swings shut. "'I'm sorry, we can't discharge you,' one of the nurses from the cubicle says, hovering beyond Jay. You rub tears out of your eyes, stumbling toward her. You'll take help from anyone but him. Your blood work indicates that we need to keep you for a CT scan tomorrow.' "'No,' Not tomorrow. You choke back gasps. Where's the exit? I refuse treatment. I'm sorry, but you signed yourself in, Jay says, staring at you evenly. You can't leave until we decide it's safe. It would be unethical to discharge you. Ethical? You sneer. Sobbing, laughing, in anger. No, no, you're a liar. But you know how you sound. You know you need to stop before they send you for psychiatric evaluation, and who knows what all those papers you signed said. They weren't meant to be read. You glare at Jay, waiting for him to contradict you. His blood-smeared face is handsome like a trap, and his dark-circled eyes are amiable. He's the only one here that doesn't seem completely washed up from a sleepless week. No one else seems to notice that both your clothes are soiled with gore. Unbelievable. Let's get you something for that migraine. Jay says and smiles knowingly. He sees your suffering, relishes it, but you can't make a scene. You don't need another reason to stay here. You let him take you back to your bed and stare at the other two nurses begging with your eyes. Jay watches on sourly as one of them places a new IV in your arm this time. Help, you whisper. That man's not a nurse. You've got to help me. She reconnects the electrodes and the dull beeping resumes. What, Josh? Girl. Here, this will help, she says, and injects something that makes even the alarm fade away. You wait clear-headed. The room muted, the alarm is still going off to your right, but the pain is gone for now. There's no telling what time it is, except that the dead man seems flattened further into the bed opposite. The half-naked patient beside him is motionless, face buried in a pillow at a concerning angle, and the woman stranded in the middle of the room has been moved behind a curtain, You can see the shoes of a nurse standing beside her bed as inarticulate sounds of pain come from the cloistered space. You know it's Jay. Someone has wiped up the vomit, but it still stains your clothes. Your pants are damp rather than soaking. You sit up, eyes darting between the double doors, the cubicle desks, and Jay. Carefully, you disconnect the IV and the electrodes, exhaling as the alarm ceases. You lean forward at the end of the bed. None of the nurses look at you. Jay steps closer to his victim. You slide to the door and limp, numb legged, across the tile, quietly push open the door to the hall and walk to a second set of doors onto the lobby. They're locked. A nurse behind a desk looks up at you as you try the handles, but you spot the exit button and press it to unlatch the doors before she can comment. You step through, walking purposefully to the sliding doors of the ER lobby as the security guard calls behind you. Hold up! The doors retract, blasting you with freezing air. You step out into the morning light onto the empty sidewalk and take a deep breath. Breath fearless. (sighs) It's so perfectly quiet, so deliciously cold. You stare up at the wide, clear sky as you walk unrestrained around the corner, holding the thin hospital gown in place, hair wild from the wind. You don't want to take the train back home. You'll walk the whole way. Your eyes drink up everything. The sky and the cracked pavement and the salt and all of it is so damn beautiful. You've never felt so alive. You wander up the stairs of the nearby park, and it's then that pain slivers your chest on your inhale. Your skin prickles all over with a sudden sweat. Footsteps approach from behind. You clutch the side of your chest with one hand and brace yourself against the cold stone wall with the other, squinting against the pain. The park is deserted. You cast your eyes around for your pursuer, dread growing, but cannot see him. You draw a second shallow breath, but the pain stabs worse than before, toppling you to knees that you can no longer feel. You open your mouth, stuttering for air, unable to pull it in through the pain. This isn't right. You're not all right. The distinction of your fingers is lost in a haze of pins and needles. You are choking, drowning, cold. Your eyes water and your throat makes sucking grunts as you slump with your face in the corner of two stone stairs, vision gone. In a moment, you'll know death, if there is anything to know. You don't care about paradise. You crave silence like air. In the distance, you can hear the birds singing, You didn't have to die today. Jay says. Even on the cusp of death, you flinch at his voice. His shoes scratch against the stone stairs as he crouches and takes your wrist, rolling you onto your back. His breath is warm and fetid on your face. You should have listened. Could have been discharged by dinner time with a prescription for blood thinners and clonopin. And I'd have let you go. There's a real feast waiting for me back there.
4: What are
3: you? You croak. He releases your wrist and exhales in an exasperated, chiding way. Ah. <sighs> I'm only here for the suffering. I thought you were done. But you just can't stop, can you? Went and found me some more pain. Your mind cramps as it catches up with what he said. You were feeling better. You might have stayed, finally gotten care, gotten better. But that's a dream built on intangible promises. The system has never been as broken as it is now. And you're done waiting for it to work. Even if it costs everything to leave, it'll be on your terms. I'm not complaining, you wheeze, forcing the last air out of your aching lungs. Your diaphragm seizes, desperate. I admit... I can't stop either, he says, and his fingers touch the side of your head. His hand sinks through the skin and bone like ice reaching into the spot behind your eye where the pain always starts. Color sparks across your mind's eye as his fingers clench in the meat of your brain. Can't live with it can't live without it, am I right? He pulls his hand out with a snap and the pain cuts off. There is nothing left but static, darkness, and the sound of him chewing wetly as you die. Raw. Such a capacity for suffering. Gone too soon. His complaint is no more than a murmur caught on a breeze fading into oblivion. Maybe he's right, but you don't mind. The silence is perfect. The silence is complete.
0: Katie Storey is a Brooklyn-based graphic designer, illustrator, and writer who fosters cranky toothless cats. She studied creative writing at Pratt Institute and is a member of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Lana Joffrey is an actor, spoken word performer, and writer working in the United States and United Kingdom, based in London. She has earned a New York Fringe, IRNE, and Ovation Award in performance and her verbatim play of women's war stories, Valiant, has traveled the U.K. and U.S. to critical acclaim. Check her out at lanajoffrey.com.
2: Welcome back, listeners.
1: And... Can we do another take? No, it's podcasting verite. Minimal edits.
2: Fine. Keep eating your chocolate armor? Though now it's more of a chocolate crop top. Jean... Uh, Val the vegan will be here any minute. He's not dangerous, just kind of
1: odd. I thought you said he'd be here already. (coughs) Oh,
2: here he is. Listeners,
1: today our special guest
2: is Val the vegan. Jean Val Vigan, if you please. Jean Val Vigan. Jean is the renowned host of a culinary podcast, Le Mystery Table.
5: Le Mystery Table.
2: Le mystery table? Val, who happens to own this recording studio, is something of a storyteller himself. Only his tools are the enchantment and alchemy of cutting-edge molecular vegan gastronomy. Today, we have the privilege of being the first test subjects to try the latest creation of Val's test kitchen.
1: Test subjects. Right. What's in the box, John Val Vegan? What's in the box?
5: A post-deconstructed impossible salad. It is a culinary work of art, the centerpiece of my Jones new exhibit.
1: Molecular masturbation, foam and agar agar beads, food about food, not real food.
5: Why don't I simply show you?
1: It's a guinea pig with little herbs glued to its fur?
5: <laughs> Microgreens, harvested from my personal garden, a special blend of jackfruit, braised mushrooms, locally sourced arugula, and a few proprietary ingredients.
1: A live guinea pig, that's your proprietary ingredient, you psycho.
5: Crude. I assure you, this is a purely vegan dish. Bon appétit.
1: Don't do it, Allison. For the sake of the podcast. Fuzzy.
2: um, Handfeel. Vegan, you said.
1: Oui.
5: Although, consider this. A live guinea pig in the all feeds upon plants. Plants it uses to grow flesh and blood. In post deconstructed cuisine, it would be considered a vegetable, would it not?
2: What it won't. It's wiggly and warm.
1: Revolution! One day more! Your salad
5: is escaping! Seize him!
1: Back off, jean Val Vegan!
5: Quel dommage. You've let my expensive experimental dish escape. How does this affect our sponsorship deal, hmm? And the penalties for breaking such an agreement? What deal? I promoted your little podcast on my show. Grew your audience up to 5,000 subscribers and counting, I believe. In exchange for permission to unveil my new products here.
1: Allie, how could you? I was the one who brought in the new subscribers with my TikToks. The analytics are still out on that.
5: Oh, amusing. I will bring in another product for your next episode. Perhaps Veronica can try it out. Do you?
1: Never! Take this, you fiend.
5: Milk chocolate. Delicious. It would have worked if I were a vampire.
2: You would have needed silver against vampires anyway.
1: I still think he's a monster. I just can't figure out what kind.
2: You're the monster.
1: Dear listeners,
2: whether you're here for literary commentary or Veronica's dumpster fire burning down the Kaleidocast, please enjoy our next story. Clearly lettered in a mostly steady hand by Fran Wilde. You are going to try that new product of his, Veronica. You owe me.
6: Clearly lettered in a mostly steady hand by Fran Wilde. Narrated by Tatiana Gray. Entrance. There's a ticket booth on my tongue. Don't look in my eyes. Don't plead curiosity. You won't get anywhere with that. Try it, and you'll see your reflection in my sea-green gaze, your shadow sprinting through the heavy glass doors. You'll smell a whiff of brine, perhaps something more volatile. You'll be caught and held while your likeness departs. You don't want that. No one wants to be pinned between an entrance and an exit. Unless you're part of the show. Here's what you do instead. Drop your dime on the rose carpet. Just there. Don't pick it up. The carpet's sticky. Don't ask why. Stare at my lips, my hands clasped over my velvet skirts. What rests below that? And wait. If you're worthy... I'll say the word. Your dime gets you a look and a souvenir. Your hands are beautiful. Did you know that? Welcome. Three steps backwards. Follow me. See the boiserie panels, carved with nymphs and satyrs and stained just so. See the seam between the boards? Push on that. Right there until it parts. You can see the hinges now in the shadows between the nymphs. Hold the door open and let me pass through. The wood feels warm to the touch. Your fingers brush a leg, a horn. Wait there. Let me light the way before you. Phosphorus hisses against air, kisses the kerosene lamp wick. We've had electric since the collection began, but most of us feel gas is easier on the eyes. It was our first disagreement with the curator. A shadow ducks low, then high. You hear soft breathing, a giggle. Curious? You're too big to fit through that small hatch. Most guests are. You'll have to crouch. Chest to knees, head down, so you can feel your lungs press your spine. Now, duck walk, your fingertips dragging on the rose carpet until red lint clings to your cuticles. Move beyond the nymphs into the wood, the wall. You think you'll be able to straighten once you're through the door, but the ceiling's too low. Keep your stoop, bend your knees, and wish only for a moment that you were smaller. Notice the mirrors, set high in the walls like eyes. Don't worry, I'll stay right behind you. A hallway of things people have swallowed. Observe, here are several obvious groupings. Fish hooks, 70, mostly steel, a few bone, 115 clam broth marbles, glass cases of them, lining the walls. Pencil nubs, matches, rows upon rows of teeth, don't touch the glass just yet. Yes, those are butterflies. Someone always tries to eat a butterfly. It tastes like dust. There are three hundred fifty worms there, the longer ones rolled up in apothecary jars along the wall. Here are the instruments used for removal, notes on the amount of time each extraction took, the state of the patient before and after, clearly lettered with a mostly steady hand. Don't miss the cases. They're drawers of pins and needles, thimbles too, as if we could sew ourselves back together from the inside. The jacks and rubber balls, the charms for good luck. That last drawer contains beetles. They are a particular delicacy, especially the large ones. They taste like solder and licorice. But don't eat the claws. Come this way. The ceilings grow higher in the next room, You won't have to stoop much longer. A radium room. Stop there. Your feet within the box, marked with black tape. Stay very still. The x-ray device hums as it warms up, but don't let it worry you. The technology is very safe. Hold still. Let me slide a film in and I'll take an image of your soul. Hold still. Your cellulose shade and shadow came out beautifully. You may move now. A few streaks of still pure hope run the film's darkness. Unless that's bone. I can cut that out if you like. No, you can't keep the image. It goes in our collection with the others. Careful of your fingers. We don't want prints. Neatly write your name on the tape at the corner. The date, too. These details are important. (laughs) Silly, you thought that was your souvenir. We spread the soles on the floor sometimes during staff breaks. Look at them, debate their merits. Keep moving through that doorway. Watch your head. A room of objects that are really people. Here, straighten up now. Hurts, doesn't it, all the tiny bones settling back into place. We have pins, if you like, to help hold you together. Maybe take this chair. I'll push you around. The wheels squeak on the wood floor, and the chair is really more of a bin. Don't mind the parts in there with you. The arms bent at angles, some screws missing, the legs still braced, the leather straps, the metal bits in the plastic... Remember, plastic's newer, and we don't really respect anyone who's turned on by that. Comfy? I wish you could see yourself slouching. You're becoming a mess, mouth wide open. And that stare at the glass cases, at me. Surely you've seen us before, on the street, in a shop? Surely you haven't gaped quite so much. Is it the ceiling? Impressive, with all the mirrors. Perspective, the angle you choose, how you observe us, makes everything change. You're nearly lying down now, which is fine. Relax, I'll push you along. You see, I can walk just as quickly as you, despite what the posters say. You're wondering how. You're imagining what's beneath my skirts, You think you can guess at me. You think you hear scales scuffing the old wood floor. You might. But see here, the cabinets here are so nicely illuminated. They're walnut, you know, brass fittings. Take a moment to stare at them. You paid your money, you might as well have a look. Don't be shy. The cabinets are here for your comfort. It's like looking at dolls, as the posters say. That's why you came. For the strange dolls in the grotesquerie. The oddities. We're keeping the lights low. Any brighter hurts our eyes, bounces off the mirrors. You can still see the finer details if you lean really close. We've left the glass off the front just for you. Let me catalogue our alphabet of differences for you. Here are the heads, the horns, the holes where they tried to let out headaches. Here are the spines, curved like serpents. Here are the jars of jellies with heads too big to be human. A pair of burly palms like beetle's claws, skin tight over bone. Here are the doubles and triples, the cephalics, their two legs supporting so much thought. The twins wrapped around one another like trees. Here is the stone baby. We found him in the trash. See his marble skin? Worn away where someone had been touching him too much. We've been teaching him his letters. Our Curator's Special Collection Through here, the lights are brighter. I can't fit your bin past the door. That is the curator's desk, his chair, his coat hung neatly, his stethoscope, the rubber gone a bit rot. He always keeps very good notes. Paid well, too. He'd seen the royal collection in Denmark, the walls crowded, the glass containers and the formalin. He'd once wondered aloud what such a display might cost, but he wasn't cruel. He wanted to fix us. Or... At least pin us still so he could study us, like you're studying the articulated skeleton in the corner. It was for posterity. Never confuse good intentions for malice. A friend told me that once. He's not here now. Not really. Am I holding your hand too tight? Oh no, you can barely feel it? Good. We'll keep moving then. More to see. A room of objects that are very sharp. Lie still. This is what you paid for. I can't push any faster. Heavy bins are difficult to pivot around corners, as are tails. You could be more considerate. You might recognize these cases. Medical tools, some very old. Many rusty hinges. Of course, that's rust. Ancient. You all love the tools so much, the spreaders, the extractors, the mechanical leeches. Open the drawers of items we've let touch us because someone just like you said it would make us well. The hooks and saws, the foul tastes, and that stuff that made us gag and didn't make us any better. You all wrote neat words down about each experiment anyway, and that made you better. Details matter, like on the x-ray, angles, perspective. Lie back. Hold my hand again. You see the mirrors? They're too high for us to see ourselves in always, but we can see you with them, no matter where we are. We can see you, and you can see us as we really are. Remember the way we turned to bone and stone When you looked at us on the street, froze, waiting to see what you'd say. Imagine the pain of it, the hardening of each joint, when you thought that word, the non scientific one, the one that rhymes with eek. You feel it, don't you? That chill down your spine, the hardening. Yeah, we know. That's why you pay your dime. So we'll stay quiet and let you look the hall of criminals and saints one more room through this arch don't worry about my skin it flakes now when i'm too long out of the water the scales fall from me like coins and people swallow them here are my last loves ah i'm always one for the bad boys oh the good ones too The first names blurred, damp, but you can see he was strong, broad jaw, firm jaw. He wasn't really a criminal, but his skull matched the phrenologist's map. They locked him up behind glass just to be safe. This one was a criminal, but they didn't catch him. He came here on his own, looking for us. See how similar his skull is to my loves? To yours? Here is my best friend, her black and gold wings, tacked to the wall with seventeen number seven steel mounting pins. Her gilt-flecked glass eyes, so like marbles, focused on the ceiling. Wore out her blue eyes, she did, trying to find differences among our guests. You are all so alike. We used the best marbles. Don't look at her eyes. You haven't earned that yet. You've earned admission, a catalog, a touch of seams, of beetle's claw, a place on the floor, no more, not our eyes. Look here, my children, bone and dust. Oh, you didn't think I could have those? Neither did we. They were a surprise, the small fish, their mouths so beautiful before they were hooked. Stay quiet. It'll be over soon. This way to the exit. Stay quiet. The lights dazzle your eyes too now. We'd never tell you that you all look odd to us. That would be rude. We'd never stare. But the truth isn't kind. You're all kind of boring, really. Identical eyes and matching limbs, smooth faces and parts all in the same order every time you come through. The curator was boring, too, once we looked close enough. But you're changed now, at least a bit. A touch of chitin, those beetle hands, they look good on you. They match your soul, luminous and opaque. Would you like to stop at the gift shop? No? Would you like a pill? A potion? There's a taste on my tongue, like brine. Something volatile. Here is a kiss to remind you. Here is a story to take home. A parting gift, a souvenir. Your kind always leaves so terribly. Gaze, darting from seam to seam. Then to sticky carpet. To my sharp eyes, my tongue. And then finally... The exit. You crawl and stumble, building up speed, tapping your ineffectual hands beautifully against the glass.
4: Two time Nebula Award winner Fran Wilde has published seven novels a poetry collection, and over 50 short stories for adults, teens, and kids. Her stories have been finalists for six Nebula Awards, a World Fantasy Award, four Hugo Awards, four Locus Awards, and a Lodestar. They include her Nebula and Compton Crook award-winning debut novel, Updraft, and her Nebula-winning Best of NPR 2019 debut middle-grade novel, Riverland. Her short stories appear in Asimov Science Fiction, Tor.com, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Shimmer, Nature, Uncanny Magazine, and multiple year's best anthologies. Fran teaches for Vermont College of Fine Arts and also writes nonfiction for publications including The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Tor.com. You can find her on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and at franwild.net.
0: Tatiana Gray is a critically acclaimed actress of Stage, Screen, and The Audio Booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damned thing. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. See more about Tatiana at www.tatianagray.com.
4: The Kaleidocast is a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Our website is www.kaleidocast.nyc, where you can find links to all our contributors and more content to enjoy. This season's Kaleidocast production team was... Brad Parks, founder, CFO, and senior producer.
0: Cameron Roberson, executive producer.
4: Sandra Fink, managing producer.
0: Christopher Lazarick, managing editor and production manager. Marcus Tsong, story runner. Anton Borst, editor, producer, sound engineer, host.
4: Carlos Luis Delgado, editor and sound engineer. Jason A.
5: Smith,
0: editor, sound engineer, actor. Sam Schreiber, senior producer, senior editor, Sound engineer.
3: Holden Lee, editor, producer, sound engineer.
6: Jason Stack, editor, producer, sound engineer, technical officer.
3: Marcy Arlin,
1: co-founder, associate producer, voice actor, director. Randy Dawn, editor, sound engineer,
4: actor. Eric Rosenfield, Chief Technical Officer.
1: SJ Pendergast, Associate Editor and Producer. I am McGuire,
2: Associate Editor and Producer.
1: Sadie Kleinman, producer.
2: Devantra Seigel, associate editor, producer, actor. Katherine Erickson, associate
1: editor.
4: And a special thanks to Amichai Green. Our music is used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 National License. That means you can listen all you like, but don't sell or change it. And give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors in usage and and reference. This episode has been brought to you by our generous Patreon subscribers whose support has meant the world to us. A special thank you to the Patreon subscribers who made this episode possible. Alpha Daily Majors, Daniel Lanoue, and Aya McGuire. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and sign up for more exclusive content at patreon.com slash